Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 6. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Before we get started with the interview, I just wanted to say thank you so much for supporting. We've, we've been on the air for less than a week, and already we've been downloaded over 400 times in over 12 countries. So thank you so much for your support. I ask you that if you go to iTunes, if you can, and, and submit a review, it helps us. We're in the new and noteworthy worthy section on the business career side. So put a re- rate a review, tell your friends about it, send it out on Twitter, Facebook, let everybody know about the Dose of Leadership. And um, if I get some reviews, I'll read them as we get to the weekend edition. So again, um, thanks for the, the support, and here's the interview. Well, I'm thrilled to have on uh, as my guest today, David Allen. Now, David Allen is an author, a consultant, he's a lecturer, and the founder and chairman of the David Allen Company. Uh, you'll probably recognize him from his, uh, his book, uh, Getting Things Done. He's widely recognized as one of the world's leading authority on personal and organizational productivity. He has over 30 years of coaching and educating some of the world's high-performing professionals, corporations, and institutions. Forbes recognized him as one of the top five executive coaches in the United States, and he was also named one of the top 100 thought leaders by Leadership Magazine. Fast Company hailed David as one of the world's most influential thinkers in the arena of personal productivity. Time Magazine labeled him his first book, Getting Things Done, as the defining self-help business book of its time, and I got to agree with that. I, I came across it 11 years ago, and it's helped me out tremendously. David, how are you today? Terrific. Thanks, Richard. Glad to be here. So bring us up to speed. Let's talk about the getting things done philosophy. How did you come across that? Give us a, I gave a brief background, but bring us up to speed. Well, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to sort of poke at this or, or angles that it came from. It was not... I didn't wake up one morning with some big overnight epiphany about, oh, gee, here's how you get your head clear and get things done with the least amount of psychic and physical effort, though that's been a primary sort of directive, an inner directive of mine, being one of the laziest guys on the planet, <laughs> but still, still, uh, you know, wanting, you know, liking to pr- produce results that are valuable for myself and for other people. So, you know, if you marry those two things together, uh, you got to come up with, okay, how do I, how do I make sure that stuff happens with as little effort as possible? I mean, I kind of wake up thinking that way. I thought everybody thought that way, but I guess not. Uh, you know, I, I whenever I walk into any situation, I say, "Well, how much easier can we make this? Can we can we do this so that, you know, essentially, I'm I'm a freedom guy. So, you know, I really came at this call. How do I get my head free of the stuff that's distracting, that's not adding value, so that I'm, you know, I I can experience what I now refer to as just the strategic value of clear space, and clear space can just be. Sort of, you know, how cool is it to be distraction-free, no matter where you are, to be able to put your attention fully on wherever you're putting your attention without having it being pulled off onto other things that you can't do anything about right then, as well as just draining your energy. So I, you know, I kind of explored at, at more and more subtle levels over all these years, what is it that we do that gets stuff off our mind and actually gets it done? And interestingly, it's not something we seem to be born doing. It is something that you can learn how to do and it's something you can either do or not do. It doesn't happen automatically. 
Yeah, I'd like to talk about how do you learn to do that. Can I share with you how I came across your book sure. personally? Yeah. No, I always love I always love to hear people's stories and you know, how they run across this. And you know, I, I I got out of the Marine Corps in two thousand and one, and I worked for my first civilian corporation, and and I was working as the director of international operations, and I would come in every morning. And I would have about 140 emails in mailbox from China every morning. And I remember thinking, I've got to have all these to-do lists. And, and I just felt inundated. And I just would lie there awake just thinking about all the things that I had to do. And then when I came across your book, and what I initially thought was, okay, this is going to help me get organized, I found that it wasn't so much an organizational book. It was a um, freeing up the mind book, if you will. And at least that's what happened with me. And I remember I got a lot of uh, made fun of. I, I went and bought a uh, a label maker. And this was, of course, this was 11 years ago. This is long before the technology we have today. And I started labeling things and dumping everything on my desk and putting things in folders. And what I found myself doing was making decisions. And what I really got from your book, and it kind of sparked um, – it reminded me of what the Marine Corps taught me too is that, look, you don't have time to get everything done. So prioritize and make decisions and move on. And it was so freeing. So that's how I came across your book. What do you think about when you hear that? And, and, and does, do you get similar responses from other people? You know, I do, Richard. That's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty universal because what I did was I didn't go you know, off in some corner and make something up. What I did was begin to recognize what it is that we all do universally that really works when it works. And then I just uh, uncovered and unpacked it down to what's the core principle. So you could apply the principle. Once you understand what the underlying principle is of something that works, then you can expand on it like crazy. In other words, I took a lot of things people do implicitly, but I made it explicit. Now that's all sounds very abstract, but I give you the very real example of it. And, you know, to, to your point as well, but I'm sure everybody's at some point felt a little overwhelmed and confused and sat down and made a list and felt at least a little more in control and a little more focused. Well, if you reverse engineered, how come that happens? And by the way, that happens w without exception to anybody, any situation. If you just unload your head, you don't have to make any decisions about that. You don't have to organize that. Not, not at that point. But if you do that, you're going to feel more in control and more focused and without exception. So, uh, and by the way, nothing changes in the world right. except how you are engaged with your world changes significantly. So that's what I began to uncover. See, if you, if you actually reverse engineered that and figured that principle out, you'd never keep anything in your head the rest of your life, <laughs> which, which, which I don't. Right. Because that, your head's for having ideas and not for holding them. Yeah. So that, I just uncovered that principle. And once you understand that principle, that's, that's like, duh. Your head, you, know, any, you keep anything in your head. If that's the only place it is and it's potentially meaningful to you, it's absolutely in the wrong place. And you will start to be highly inefficient and ineffective with how you manage your energy. And anybody I've ever told that to goes, oh, duh, you're right. And yet almost everybody out there does not have that habit. No, you're right. So, it, it sounds so simple when, when we talk about it here, you know, at, at, at zero speed. But you're right. When you're, when you're in buried with all the tasks and all the minutia and all the life that's just flooding your head, the idea is to free your head. Without freeing your head, you cannot be an effective leader. You cannot be creative. And it was an epiphany for me because I found myself, I was doing work for work's sake, if that makes sense. Sure. And, and feeling, and boy, I got so much satisfaction of crossing out the to-do list. But what I found myself doing 
was I was crossing off the stuff with least the, the path of least resistance. I really wasn't tackling the things that were significant and important. And so if I had 100 items on my list and I got through 50, it was always the 50 that didn't really matter a hill of beans. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you know, back to the to kind of stretching back up to the a higher level view of what this methodology is about, since you have a military and an aeronautics background, how important are maps in those two areas? Oh, they're very important. You got to know you're constantly. How about, yeah, they're mission critical. It's very critical. You have to especially know where you're at. When it, especially when it gets nuts. Right. Right. So what you were just talking about was, gee, my world was nuts in terms of my work. Well, all you needed to do was the right maps. All I figured out was the algorithm that you needed to apply so that you could produce the appropriate maps. What's the map I need to see when I wake up in the morning relative to my day? What's the map I need to see when I'm going into the board meeting? What's the map I need to see when I'm thinking about my family or my personal life? What's the map I need to see when I'm thinking about the next six months? And those are all very different maps. Ideally, they should all map to each other. Uh, but there's a lot of different content in there. There's tons of different content. So I just figured out you know, how to get very explicit about the implicit content that everybody's walking around with so that you could wind up with the appropriate maps. Now, the map is not the terrain. In other words, these maps and these lists of things that, that wind up being, hey, I'm committed to do this. I need to handle that. Here's where I'm going. Here's my goals. You know, all that kind of stuff. Anything that's potentially meaningful in terms of your life and work that you do need to or want to at some point keep track of, you just need to get a lot more discreet about what exactly is it that you need to keep track of about that and then put those on appropriate maps. And that's what my book and, and all of my work has really been about was just making that very explicit. You know, what are the best ways to both define what your work is as well as how do you park it in the appropriate places. So, you know, when you're either, I'm not sure what my next direction is or, oh my God, I'm overwhelmed. How do I get out from under this? You just need the right maps to pull out. And you need to know how to build the maps and keep them current. That's, uh, you know, another key part of it. Sure. So if someone's out there listening and, and not familiar with your work, haven't read your book and they're just buried, what is the, the, the kind of the first critical thing they can do to get out from under it? Get unburied, meaning getting out, get it out of your head. So get yourself a pen or paper or a computer or go up to a whiteboard and absolutely take, you know, two hours and don't stop. Get every single thing, little, big, personal, professional, anything that's creating tension in your head, i.e. that you have attention on, uh, you need to just grab it. You need to get a placeholder for it. Now, that's not the end game, but that's right. the absolutely first critical piece that you have to do is you have to start to identify at least the raw pieces of current reality. And what's not going to be in your head are things that are on cruise control. That's the whole, the, the, the whole point is, is the only reason stuff is on your mind is because some, something about it is not on cruise control. So, gee, I need cat food. Write it down. Oh, my gosh, I need to get a life. Write that down. Uh, you know, I want to find God. Write that down. Uh, I need to get a new computer. Write that down. <laughs> just get it all down, right. you know, and just be to totally sort of, sort of, uh, you know, reverently irreverent about all of it and just get it all out. That's step one. Now that, by the way, is, is, is game changing just to begin yeah, with, just to get, just to get all that out, but you can't, you can't leave it there. Right. It's very liberating. Let's talk about what next then. Okay. Now I've got post-it notes. I've got things in my iPad. I got things in my Microsoft Outlook. My brain well, feels a little freer. Now what do I do? Well, first of all, you need to understand that, that what you're doing here in the first stage is you're really filling up an in-basket. 
Right. You know, you're, and that could be physical in-basket, jot notes, throw them in the in-basket, make a list. That's really in-basket. That's not really an organizer. Right. That's not an organizing piece. All you're doing is identifying stuff you then need to make decisions about and then need to organize the results. But so the first thing, first of all, you need to make sure that there's a distinction between stuff that's already organized in some appropriate system and the stuff that still needs processing. Because ultimately what you want to do is once you dump all that stuff out of your head, let's suppose you went up to a whiteboard and dumped it all out. You need to be able to erase that white board right. as soon as you can. And, but you can only erase it once you've taken each one of those items very specifically and gotten very clear about what exactly that means to you. So stage two is to take the discrete items that you've captured into the, into the sort of raw data capture places, your in-baskets or those lists, and then one at a time one by one, go through each one and ask some critical questions. First of all, is it an actionable item, yes or no? And if it's not, you either toss it, tickle it, or file it, which is what you do with non-actionable stuff. But the stuff that you say, yeah, I need to get cat food, or yes, I need to hire an assistant, or yes, I need to launch the ad campaign, or whatever that stuff is, then you need to clarify, then you need to get more discreet about what exactly that action requires. In other words, the core, think thought process to getting things done is defining what done means and what does doing look like and where does it happen. So outcome and action become the key distinctions that need to be made at this stage. What outcome, if any, does that thing I wrote down represent? Oh, I need to hire an assistant. Great. Okay. Now you have a project. You have some outcome, some small goal or objectives that you need to identify. And then what's the very next thing you need to do about that? If you had nothing else to do but hiring a system, what would you do next? Where would you go? Would you go to a computer and surf? Would you call somebody and ask their advice? Would you, you know, talk to your life partner? I mean, what do you, what's the very next thing you need to do? Once you've clarified those, you've now actually done a tremendous amount uh, of a, a clarification of the things that are on your mind. What's the outcome? What's the action step? you know, if it's an actionable item. So that's stage two, it's just going through that process. And then you very quickly need to then organize the results of that thinking. Once you've done that, that's how you get your in-basket empty, by the way. Doesn't mean you finish the work, but it does mean you define the work and you park placeholders for it in the right places. Do you find people getting stuck after they do that? Because really what you're getting to now that you've got some organization, you've got some free brain space, now you gotta make some decisions. Do you find people getting stuck there? I'm curious. Well, people get stuck all, all the way through this process. Sure. <clears throat> you know, the first stick is keep stuff in your head. <laughs> so <laughs> let's, uh, w once you get that unstuck, then people still have sort of incomplete lists of still unclear things, you know, scattered around because they're resisting deciding what the action item is and what the outcomes and projects are embedded in these. So that's the second place to fall off is people could just be, be compulsive list makers with a bunch of stuff that's still unclear. Sure. They'll have, they'll have lists with things like mom or budget or bank you know, or checkup and understood that those are things that represent something they kind of sort of know what they are, but they haven't gotten real discreet called what's the next step. And so, the, you know, that's a, that's another place people get stuck right there. They just don't go any further than making the discreet decisions, you know, or to make the discreet decisions they need. The third place they'll get stuck, let's say, okay, I've decided to call my sister about that thing, but then they don't write it someplace that they trust they'll see when they're at a phone and have time. In other words, they, they've made a decision about it, but they haven't parked it somewhere that in, in some sort of a trusted system that they can trust they will see or the right person will see that at the right time relative to what it means to them. So the third stage is, is to be appropriately organized once you decide what these things are in terms of your work, put them in the appropriate categories so you don't have to keep rethinking what they mean.
and that they're accessible to you kind of when and where you need it as opposed to trying to keep track of it in your head and be and remember and remind. So that's the third stage is people have a lot of improvement opportunities in terms of just making sure they get all that stuff in appropriate places in, in a system that they trust. And then the, the fourth place they get stuck is they don't trust the system because even if they wrote it all on the list, they don't engage with the list appropriately yeah. and, and step back and review it on a regular basis and keep it current. So you got to bring up the rear guard on a regular basis because the world is changing as we speak. Yep. And, so, and so the list, you know, keep changing and morphing and you just need to make sure they don't get out of date. Otherwise, you'll be not motivated to keep it up. You'll take it all back in your head and you'll be back to being driven by latest and loudest. You know, when I when I, I broke out the original book that I bought 11 years ago, and it's amazing how much technology has changed in the last 12 years. And, and I know it's how many languages you're is it 28 languages your book has been published in now? Yeah, I think that's the last number, yeah. How much in um, – and were you involved in FireTask? Is that your app? No. No? No, it, but it, they're – don't worry. There are over 400 apps at last count that purport to support my model and the GTD model. So they, you know, they're showing up daily. It would be hard to keep track of all of sure. them. Sure. I guess my goes to my question of technology has changed so much in 11 years. In three years, it's changed so much. Do you think the technology and all the tools and, of course, having an iPad, I can tell you my experience. I, you know, I'm a tool junkie, and my weakness with that is sometimes I find you know, I still revert back to the paper and it still works. That sometimes doing the tool for tool's sake doesn't solve the problem. What are your thoughts on that, on the technology and how much things have changed? Is it better? Is it worse? Has it put more things in people's head? Nah, hadn't changed very much. Yeah. Not really. Come on, I got a Palm in 1995. Right. I just it's probably as good a list manager as there is out there now. Yeah. You know, so the only thing that's changed is, you, you, you know, a little sexy in terms of how fast you can slice and dice information and how many ways you can cut it. Right. But it's still, you know, if you if you understand this thought process, all those tools look pretty similar. All you really yep. need is a, li a list manager that's ubiquitously available to you. Um, if you don't know this process, all the technology makes it look and feel a lot more complicated and a lot more you know, over, overwhelming. Yeah. So it's not, really a, it's not really about the technology. It's really about do you understand what to do with it. If you don't understand what to do with it, any gear will do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, any, and any gear will, will, will overwhelm you, you know, in terms of that. And most people, even with all those gears, are not using it for what it could be used for. That's why my stuff hit such a nerve for the tech community because with my model, it actually was able to turbocharge whatever their favorite gear was. They could yep. actually use yep. it well. <laughs> I agree know, so with that. Out Outlook users went, oh my God, here's a way cool way to actually yeah. reconfigure Outlook so it actually works, you know, and et cetera. So it's, uh, you know, yeah, the technology probably, the, just the, you know, the going mobile and iPads and so forth, it just makes it, you know, a little bit easier uh, to be able to have and see your data more places. But, you know, quite frankly, uh, still, I just I remember in 1995, uh, you know, the, the desktop application for Palm was as simple as you could get. And it translate, you know, it synced to the Palm you could carry with you that had a fabulous form factor. So frankly speaking, you know, what was that, 16 years ago? Yeah. Ain't changed a bunch. Nope. 
You know, it's still the same thing. And that's why paper and a lot of high-tech people actually going back to paper because they really realize that paper oftentimes maps the way to the way your mind functions, the mm -hmm. way you can integrate data from one to the next. Yep. It's very hard to see more than one screen at a time, especially yeah. if you get on mobile mm -hmm. uh, devices out there. And yet with a paper planner, you can flip very easily from one to the other and kind of see and feel the whole gestalt a lot easier. Now, the computer's going in that direction, obviously, but it's still, you know, it's still not not that big a deal relative to increasing personal productivity. Yeah, I mean, that's, and I guess I can't emphasize enough. I know when I first bought your book and I started doing it, I remember the, the assistant that was working with me, you know, she, it was hard for me to explain and articulate, and even for me now, and maybe you can help me with this, that it's not really an organizational system, is it? I mean, it's really about freeing the mind. Am I, am I off track or on track? Well, you're on track in that organize is a, is a component of what you need, yes. need to do to have a clear head. Organization simply means that where something is visually and physically matches what it means to you. And that's actually a critical component. Because if you don't have something parked in the right place, some part of you is constantly rethinking yep. what it means. Mm -hmm. So organize, I get organized because I'm so lazy. I don't want to have to keep rethinking what do I need to do about that. I've already made that decision. And so if it's a phone call, it's on a list called calls to make. So when I look at that list, it is very clear what I need to do about every one of those six things <laughs> or yeah. 16 things. That's, those are all calls to make. Then what it does is it frees up my intuitive judgments to then be making moment-to-moment -moment intuitive judgments about which of those calls I need to make. I'm not using my head to try to remember and remind that I have 16 phone calls to make. So it's critical that you have a system and that that system include an appropriate sort of categories so that when you look at a, a group of things, you don't have to keep rethinking what it means. So the best practice is just, hey, once I've decided what this means, hey, this is a project that I need to finish within the next few weeks or months, great. Where do, where do you want those reminders? Where do you want that map? Well, I need a list of all my projects, so once a week I can take a look at that. Ah, now that's an organization that if you don't have, you're not going to be as in control and focused as you need to be. Great. So organization is a critical component, but it's stage three. It's not stage one. Right. Most people's organization are just incomplete, you know, incomplete piles of unclear things being rearranged, <laughs> which doesn't solve anything. You know, so what, and most people I understand think, oh, I need to go get organized. But they, again, they don't, they haven't captured everything, nor have they decided what the work embedded in each of those things are. So even if they have lists or they have some sort of a structure, it doesn't give them the real appropriate map so that they really trust it. Right. So, uh, so it, it is a, it's a critical component, but it's not the essence of productivity. Yep. Share with us the mind like water concept. I love that piece. It's one of my favorite things that you've talked about. Share that with us. Well, like, you know, I steal that from the martial arts. I got a black belt years ago in karate, and there, there's, there is a concept of mind like water, which basically says you want a clear head. You know, there's a lot of practices in the martial arts about how do you clear your head so that you get attacked by four people in a dark alley. You don't want to have, you don't want to have your head distracted by anything, right? So, you know, and... You know, clearing your head is a great way to be able to get what you know in the military. And as a pilot, situation awareness is, right. the, criti is the critical success component to, to how, well, how well can you be aware of where something's coming at you and what it is against all the other things in, the, in, in your reality. How fast can you sort through all that? Well, you know, that, the idea of having a clear, you know, water responds appropriately 
to whatever you throw into it. It doesn't overreact. It doesn't underreact. So it's a, you know, it's a clear space, a clear deck, if you will. Now, you, you never have nothing on your mind if you're conscious. Your mind's always going to be focused on something. But if the only thing that's on your mind is where you consciously decide you want to put your mind so your mind is not distracted, you know, that's essentially when you're in your zone. And when you're in your zone, you know, that's when time disappears. Uh, there's no distinction between personal or professional. There's no distinction between work or life or any of that. It's just what's next. So, you know, the, the, it, it's really a matter of being fully present with where you are. But in order to do that, you need to be aware of every single thing else that's sort of in your psychic gestalt out there and make sure it's okay you're not doing any of that. So in a way, it's, you know, one of my aphorisms is that you can only feel good about what you're not doing when you know what you're not doing. <laughs> So it's hard to have a clear head if you know that there's stuff out there you would, could, should, might ought to be doing, but don't know exactly what it is. Good luck. <laughs> what are some so, Go ahead. You can, you can only do one thing at a time. So either half empty, half full. You're either feeling good that this conversation right now, Richard, is what you need to be doing, or you're feeling crappy about all the other stuff you should be doing instead of talking to me. Or even worse, you're afraid there might be something else more important than talking to me. If you actually knew what it was and knew you were avoiding that, then it's like, well, actually, that's not so bad. That's just procrastination. What the heck? We all do that. Right. You know, uh, it's, it's more that free-floating anxiety from sources you can't identify, you can't pinpoint. Yeah, that, that gnawing of not knowing, yeah, there's something, it, but you don't know what it is. That's the more subtle you know, disturbance of mind like water. Mm -hmm. Can't pinpoint. So you know, once you identify, you need to identify the enemy. <laughs> you, need, <laughs> you need to identify you are you need to see what all that is it doesn't mean you're not in stormy weather or that you don't have challenges heck no i mean my stuff doesn't get rid of those you won't you don't want to get rid of challenges you'd never grow or expand or express right. yourself mm -hmm. in the expanse if you didn't have some sort of you know challenge you know to to overcome or to deal with or to or to accept uh, so it doesn't make life easier in that sense what it does is it gives you a, a it, it maximizes your resources and optimizes your ability to engage with that with your hand on the wheel instead of, again, being the victim to it. What are some of your biggest success stories or maybe your earliest ones and you knew you were onto something, that you were working with someone and, and you knew this was there was something big going on here? Almost from the very beginning. You know, a, a mentor of mine, a guy named Dean Atchison that I, uh, that I uh, acknowledge in my book, was, was a mentor who had spent years in, in executive coaching and, and organization uh, consulting and in organizational alignment and, and change. And, you know, he had uncovered the fact that you needed to get people's heads empty before you could try to go into the future to begin with. So just unloading everything out of your head was an exercise that he used with the executives and with all the people in the organizations that he was working with because he just discovered there was an awful lot of psychic residue there that would just be like trying to run in quicksand if you're trying to move against that, as well as being able to set up a good in-basket process where people could be trusted that once they got stuff out of their head, they could decide what the next action was on it and didn't lie fallow there or that people were, were hung up. So just emptying your head and, and deciding the next action on things you know, first of all, Dean did that with me, and I thought I was organized until he worked with me and sat down and went, oh, my gosh, did that change my experience? And then I worked with him for a couple of years, and every single person, both then and since then, that we've done that process. And I've certainly refined and expanded on that process quite a bit over the last 30 years. But without exception, whenever I sit down with somebody, elegantly and uh, dramatically increases their sense of control and focus on what they want to do. So you can't beat that with a stick. Uh, no. without, without exception, 
the stuff you know was powerful to begin with. So as I said, there, there wasn't any like, wow, all of a sudden that I discovered it. it was like as soon as you'd start to do that with anybody and then just build a methodology so that I could sit down and have an excuse to walk people through this process and, and watch what happened. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, just phenomenal. So we get emails daily from people all over the world now where they just pick this up, start to do it. Oh my God, it changed my life. So I guess the most surprising thing is how long it takes the world to get it. I guess I have job security. <laughs> you know, if everybody caught this right away, <clears throat> but again, that's, it's a little unfair because you know, this was stuff over many years that I, I pieced together the various components of this model. It didn't all show up sort of in one nice little pink no, code. Right. So I understand that it took me, you know, many, many years to sort of accumulate all of these. And, you know, somebody suddenly runs across the book and they go, oh, my God. And they start to do a little bit of it and it feels fabulous. And then they wonder, of course, how come they fall off the wagon. And, you know, over all these years, which I have to say, you know, well, you know, probably two million people in all the different languages that, that have gotten my book. I've never gotten one piece of feedback that anybody says any of this is wrong. Yeah. The only say is gee it's all right i just wish i did it <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's there's the, the self-discipline piece the huge component of this to make it work for sure but it sounds like the david allen company and i don't know this is just me kind of you know here i was 11 year, years ago buying the book and now just listening to you some of the nuggets i'm getting from you is that this has really kind of grown into a movement it's not so much just david allen and a consultant telling me how to get organized it's really turned into a movement is it not it has yeah it has and, you know, our challenge as a company is how do we take advantage of that? How do we support it? Uh, because it is the, the, the world is not going any direction other than needing it more and more right. uh, in terms of the, the necessity to be aware of it. And, you know, so they're trying to figure out how do we support that and how do we make it work, uh, you know, for, for even more people. Because, you know, quite frankly, anybody in the planet. That, that needs to keep track of more than one thing at a time, then they can't finish it when they think of it, can utilize this methodology to good effect. Yeah. So, so there's a pretty broad audience out there. This answer, the answer to this may be obvious, but how I'm curious to how you respond to how does all this tie to leaders and leadership, both on personal leadership, but also maybe at the C-level leadership too? Well, interesting. I've just, just been coaching a CEO of a, of a very large organization and highly exposed. Um, and, you know, his, his point of view was, gee, David, I could get along without really doing this that well. I can't do that anymore because I'm living in a glass office because I'm expecting my whole culture to now shift and change toward this kind of outcome and action focus. And the, a lot of the sort of thought process of GTD is what He's realizing the whole culture needs to change and enhance and optimize a lot better. And he's got to be modeling that. So whereas he said, you know, I can I could get by with some loose edges and let a few things fall through the cracks and he could do that no longer because he now needs to represent, you know, what this is like. And, you know, quite frankly, by the time you get to that level, big surprise to me over all the years, especially early on, was that the, as I ran across more and more sophisticated people with higher levels of accountability and responsibility, I thought they would have already handled all this <laughs> wrong. <laughs> the higher up you get and the more sophisticated they are, you, the more challenged you are to, to keep the right maps and to stay real clear. Because, boy, you can overwhelm yourself like crazy and confuse yourself like crazy you know, as you get up into those levels of ambiguity. So building the rigor to, to build a thought process and a methodology so there are no leaks in your own system 
makes it a lot easier to hold other people to those standards and model the kind of behavior that you're really asking other people to be. And, you know, all those challenges about being innovative and being strategic and being creative, which is a lot of what the admonition for leaders are, are these days. You know, how do you do that? And a whole lot of those leaders are going, yeah, I know what to do. I don't have the bandwidth to do it. Yeah. And so you know, they're, they're so overwhelmed and confused by all that, or it's creating so much distraction in their world that they don't have that one to two to three hours a week to sit down and be doing the kind of thinking that they need to be doing as leaders. They say, I know how to mentor. I don't have time to do it. You know, so give yourself space. You know, so that's what they're after is sort yeah. of the psychic space to be able to then do those things that a lot of those folks already know is good stuff to do. Uh, they just don't have the capability to do it. Yeah, I've seen that a lot, and on, uh, and I've been guilty of it too, but I've seen some C-level leaders, and, and they get in the position, and, and they get all these grand ideas, and the next thing you know, they're just overwhelmed with, like you said, the bandwidth. And it is a shame, because that's probably the number most number one complaint that you hear from you know, the middle managers, the line folks, and the perception that you see is like, well, he's never, he or she's never out of his out of their office. It would be just right. be great to see him every now and then, and to empathize with the the leader, they don't feel like they can. But one thing I love what you've always said, I've quoted many times in presentations and even on my own teams is, well, we just don't have enough time. And and you've said, well, look, you got the same twenty four hours that Albert Einstein did, the same twenty four hours that Leonardo da Vinci had. Talk to me a little bit about that concept of when people say, I just don't have enough time. Well, here's the thing. You know, I make the point that when you're in a crisis, uh, you actually move into a kind of serenity and high productivity because what happens is you, you get focused very real, very specifically on the outcome. You absolutely decide very next actions and keep start moving on it. You, you step back and see the gestalt of the whole picture as fast and as rapidly as you can. And you basically put every single thing else on a back burner. Said, hey, tires and taxes don't mean anything if my building is burning down right now. Right. right? And you get very highly focused on all that. So in a way, you actually it's easier to step into your zone and to be highly productive when you have a highly stressful, challenging situation like that that you throw yourself into. However, when that crisis gets over, there's a more subtle crisis that happens because as soon as that pressure gets over, then it, it's like all of a sudden the gates of your city come falling down and all the barbarians at the gate come running across the moat going, okay, now you need your taxes and now you need tires and now you need this. And suddenly <laughs> your brain now right. is opened up to the flood of all the infinite amount of other things that you have your attention on. And so being able to then manage that well, essentially with the same kind of rigor that a crisis forces you to get clear about your outcomes, get clear about your actions, get the right maps and be able to step back and to be able to manage that. If you don't do that, then that's, that's when time and prioritizing and getting organized all come to the fore because it's not those, those are not the issues. It's just those become, that seems to be the issue. Wow. Now I don't have time to deal with all the overwhelm that just got, that just allowed my psyche to get flooded again. So you need to then just get very discreet with all of that. And you know, it's, it's a more subtle kind of crisis that people are living in. Yeah, maybe that's why people just kind of hit me. Is that, is that, do you think why a lot of people feel like they have to work in crisis mode because it gets thrown into the front of the brain and they feel like that's sure. when they're most effective? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, come on. Ask any writer. They, you know, deadlines are when they write most of their stuff. Yeah. At the last minute. Me and my wife were just talking about the other day, you know, and she said, you know, I, I do best when I'm under pressure and getting things done. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
you know, it, it's funny about that because, you know, it's same, it happens to me too. So I try to give myself false deadlines so that, it, I, so that I finish two or three days ahead of the deadline because mm -hmm. the, I, then the unconscious actually gets a chance to work on it. So then I actually, all those things I wake up the next morning, morning I do, oh, I should add this or I should have said this. I actually have time to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for years I'd, I'd wait to the last minute and then three days after I turned in the article, you know, I'd have a fabulous idea that I should have written in the article. So, you know, you, you can sort of figure out how, the, how your energy works on that and take, you know, take advantage of it. I would be remiss as we get near the end of the interview here. You, you've, you know, getting things done isn't the only thing that you've, you've written. I mean, you've, you've had uh, Ready for Anything and Making It and Making It All Work. Is that right? Winning yep. the, at the Game of Work and Business of Life. Yep. What, what's, what's new in those? What are, what are we doing with those two? Well, they the the second one, ready for anything, was a bunch of uh, essays that I compiled together. That was more kind of and oh by the way, some of the subtlety or more sublime stuff in and around it. That none of none of my books, you know, essentially have any different information in terms of the methodology itself. But ready for anything, sort of added, uh, you know, sort of approached it from a different angle. Uh, you know, snacking at more subtle levels about the different aspects of of the methodology and what happens when you apply it. And then making it all work was after, you know, nine or ten years of watching how this worked and why, taking it a little deeper and wider. Oh, what, what, why did this methodology hit, hit such a nerve and really expand on it some more and expand a little bit more about the different horizons that we have with these commitments and a little bit more about, you know, uh, sort of understanding these at, at multiple and more subtle levels, how this operates. Well, where can they find you, David? I mean, wow, you, you've given me so much more. This is so much fun talking to you. But where can people find you? Where, where are you at on the web? DavidCo.com, D-A-V-I-D-C-O dot C-O-M. There's lots of stuff there. You know, if people are just hearing about this for the first time. We actually have a starter kit that we put together, which includes my first book and some CDs from those of us kind of talking about what it's like to start to implement this in real time in the real world out there. So I highly recommend. I think it's like seventy nine bucks, something like that, and it's a, that's very much worth it as as a getting started kind of package. My first book, Getting Things Done, you should be able to find in all the yeah, that's you know, all, everywhere. All, all the sources of of books out there, and you know, it's really all in there. Uh, it's just sometimes it's easier to. Maybe you want the audio book because you need it's easier for you to listen to it. Uh, but there are lots of different angles. The website has a lot of stuff that you can uh, surf around. We have GTD Connect, which is an online learning, uh, essentially a library and support uh, um, mechanism that has just tons of information, lots of multimedia stuff about this. Great forums out there that people are in all around the world who are, you know, a lot of people talking about their own best practices and how they're applying this. So there's, there's lots of stuff to surf around there. So it would you know, oh, yeah, be a good, good five-minute surf. Yeah, you go got a site. pretty extensive. I'm looking right now at the products piece on your website. So, yeah, very, a lot of good stuff out there. Okay, cool. Yep. I'll, I'll put a link to the on, on my website too. On the, we, on the we do public seminars around as well, mostly in the U.S., but a few outside uh, the U.S. Uh, but people might want to look on that because oftentimes you get one of our senior people you know, delivering these, you know, full one day uh, mastering workflow seminars really puts a lot of flesh and blood on this as well. So lots of different angles, lots of different ways people can play. Awesome. Well, David, you are definitely a doctor of leadership and an organization. You've given us a healthy dose today. Stay in the line after recording. I'll talk to you a little bit more. But uh, David, thanks for taking your time out of your busy schedule and, and sharing with us today. My pleasure, Richard. Good luck to all of you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook. 
a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.